0: Welcome to the Joy of Home Cheesemaking Podcast. Join us as we delve into the fun and science behind home cheesemaking.
1: Welcome to the first episode of the Home Cheesemaking Podcast. I am David Bleckman, your host, and the force behind joyofcheesemaking.com. I am a home cheesemaker of about nine months' experience. Uh, My wife took me to my first home cheesemaking class in April of this year, 2009, and I have been obsessed and hooked on the hobby ever since. I have a history of brewing beer, making bread, making vinegar, uh, curing charcuterie. I guess those might be covered under the term pantry arts. Uh, of which cheesemaking is one of them. I became really excited about doing a podcast about cheesemaking because it seemed like, uh, although there is a lot of information out there, none of it really um, struck me as really excellent information. And I had done a previous podcast with some friends of mine called Twitch Asylum uh, about video games and had some podcasting experience. And so I decided that I'd borrow the microphones while they're on a hiatus and try my hand at it. So as far as the scope of the podcast, we're of course going to cover home cheesemaking and all the art and science behind it. And I do want to focus quite a bit on the science behind cheese making because cheese making um despite what a lot of books say is not an easy thing to get right. And there are a lot of ways you can have problems or mess up a cheese. And I think a lot of starting cheese makers out there would really benefit from a scientific approach to the problems of making cheese. And I also would like to cover commercial cheese and talk to uh, commercial cheese makers and cheesemongers. Uh, one of the benefits I find from making cheese is I really have a much better understanding of the cheese making process and. I really uh, appreciate what it takes to, for an artisan cheesemaker, in fact, even more so a small-scale artisan cheesemaker. Because given the cost of milk and the amount of time that goes into making a cheese, it's amazing they can sell the cheese for what they do. I also feel like I can talk to a cheesemonger and speak intelligently about different types of cheese, what to expect from different types of milk and styles, and know what I will like what my, and what my guests will like if I'm making uh, buying cheese to go with a meal. Uh, as far as the format of the podcast, I see it being a once a month or so podcast, uh, hopefully to get a lot of guests on so you don't just have to l- listen to me talk all the time because I know that can get really boring. And speaking of getting guests on the show... Let's go to our first feature where I'm going to make a cheese with my friend, Jeff Cowan coming right up. So I'd like to welcome to the home cheese making podcast, Jeff Cowan, who is a friend of mine. Uh, we used to work together. Uh, Jeff, why don't you, uh, tell a little bit about yourself and your history.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, David. Um, yeah, we used to work together and, uh, Let's see. I um I well let's say, I guess my first qualification is I I love to eat. Yes. And I love food. <laughs> Would um, you call
1: yourself a foodie? I think so. I I, hate I don't know that if that's word. a dirty word these days or not. <laughs> yeah. Um mm-hmm.
0: but uh yeah, I mean I love uh love eating out in restaurants and love trying new things. There's almost not a, a food that I will eat. So um you know you got to try everything at least once in your life, but I think cheese is always um has always held a little bit of a special appeal for me. It's one of these kind of magical foods, you know. You you take something so um, elemental and as essential as milk, and you can you can transform it so many so many ways. So that's always been very appealing um, to me. But I've um yeah I've done I've done some home brewing before, and I do like to cook. Um, you know I like all all kinds of cuisines, so um uh, you know that's kind of my I don't have a deep background in food but I I do like to read a lot about food as well and uh I was doing some reading on cheesemaking um prior to coming over and boy it seems like it's a whole universe um
1: Yeah yeah it's definitely a deep a deep subject and like like brewing, you can get in way into it and way overboard into it It looks like um, there's a lot of
0: similarities too in terms of you know the kinds of equipment that a person uses at least for some parts of it and so that right. that kind of it seemed like you know, as a brewer, that might be something where I could make a transition into doing cheese yeah. making as well.
1: I think a lot of people could do that from because it requires a lot of kettles and thermometers, and yeah, I think you need more. You definitely need a more accurate thermometer in cheesemaking than you do in brewing. But yeah, the floating thermometers that you use in brewing are very useful. As you'll see tonight. Um, so tonight, what I thought we'd do is you and I are going to make a cheese and. What I have on the schedule is a Munster cheese. Uh, the Munster is a washed, r- wa- washed rind cheese. It, um, I've been wanting to do a washed rind cheese since I've started because I really like uh, a good stinky cheese, which are what the washed rind cheeses are known for. Um, what makes a washed rind cheese, um, a washed rind cheese is, is this uh, bacteria uh, called, I believe, Brevi bacterium linens. Um part of cheese making is learning to say all these very complicated latin words um, and it is a bacteria you use uh, that is uh, found in human perspiration um, and has an odor when it's um, been in a cheese that makes a cheese smell like uh, like stinky feet um, so it's kind of <laughs> it's interesting to, to think that uh, you actually purposely make uh, cheese uh, smell that way but it gives the cheese a very creamy texture and a wonderful flavor, a really musky, uh, musky flavor. Would you,
0: David, would you say this is, this is a good
1: type of a cheese um, for a beginner to, um, to start with? or um... I wouldn't. I, I would advise against it. I would start with something uh, simpler, which is kind of unfortunate I'm doing that for my first show, uh, uh, advanced cheese. But really, it's, the only thing it's advanced about it is that you add this, um, this bacteria to it during the process, at the very beginning of the process. Everything else is pretty standard, so uh, yeah, I think you're just gonna have it's just gonna be a more uh a much more flavorful cheese by using it. yeah, I would start out with um one of the fresh cheeses if you're starting out, but this does illustrate at least most of the common steps of the cheese making process, which uh, we should go through
0: so yeah I'm definitely in- interested um just in the little bit of reading I've done it. sounds like um every little detail counts when it comes to cheese making and um I imagine uh, different cheeses have different processes. and
1: Yes, exactly. So the basic steps to making any cheese, it's all a matter of turning this liquid milk into a solid cheese. And in order to do that, you need to uh, coagulate the milk either through acid coagulation and, or by using uh, an enzyme like rennet. And rennet is... Uh, comes from um, the fourth stomach of the cow or an uh, unweaned ruminant and it's uh, so it's a it's not a vegetarian option but there are vegetarian rennets that come from uh, fungus different types of fungus um, they don't coagulate as well and so I don't use them because um, I don't have a problem with using animal-based rennet but some people might but that's always that's always a good point so you coagulate the milk uh, in some way and then once it's coagulated, you'll have a more or less a gelatinous gelatinous substance that you need to uh, get to the, expel the whey from that. And you get curds and whey. And there's various ways of doing that. Usually what you do is cut the curds or you cut the gelatinous uh, material so that you uh, increase the surface area of each curd. Uh, and then you can either heat it or just um, let it sit for a while and it will expel whey. Uh, once it's gotten to the point that is required for the recipe you're doing, you then uh put it in a mold. And I'll, there's all, there's two molds in making cheese. There's the mold that uh like blue mold or white mold that flavors cheese and is a fungus, and then molds that where you form the cheese, M O L D. Um I guess actually both M O L D M O L D Um they uh, and you mold it, and then sh- that they'll cause the sh- the the whey will continue to seep from the curds and and it'll become a solid mass which will then eventually become the cheese. In some cheese, and when you're making hard cheese, you often press it. Uh, we're not doing that in this one, it does not call for because this is a semi soft cheese. But if we did do that, you would uh, press it um, to expel more whey and, and cause the curds to knit together. Uh, and then after you've pressed it or uh, expelled all the way or molded it, you age it, um, depending on what the cheese is. That can take anywhere from a week to a year. For, for a week for some cheeses, like um, I think one of the recipes I looked for, at for monsters said age it for a week, but the, I saw other recipes that called for up to three months. So we'll do something in between them, probably like two months or so. And I guess that's, uh, that's a good primer, so um, why don't we go upstairs and start making some cheese?
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. Alright,
1: cool. Before we go into the kitchen, I wanted to cover just a few of the equipment basics you'll need for making cheese. First of all, you'll need two pots, one larger than the other so that the smaller pot can fit in the larger one. The larger one will have a water bath in it, which will help control and maintain the temperature of the milk during the cheese making process you will need a dairy thermometer which is a quick reacting and very accurate thermometer. You need to keep the milk at a very specific temperature for the recipe because one or two degrees difference can greatly affect the multiplication rate and acid production of bacteria. You'll want probably to have another thermometer to keep track of the temperature of the water bath. It's not absolutely necessary you can use one thermometer for both but it's awfully convenient to have one thermometer outside and one thermometer inside the pots. Uh, You'll need a stirring device which could be a stainless steel slotted spoon or you can get a large ladle, a slotted ladle that works well too. Uh, You'll need cheesecloth and a colander to drain the curds when you're done. Different recipes call for different equipment but in general you'll need cheesecloth you'll always need cheesecloth and you usually need a colander at some point during the process if you're making a hard cheese you'll need molds Uh, these are molds for forming the cheese not the mold to flavor the cheese that's a different kind of mold and as far as ingredients go you'll need a bacterial starter rennet and of course the milk if you're using store-bought milk you'll probably also want to use calcium chloride You can buy everything you need from a online cheese making supply store but a lot of these things you can also find around the house or may have leftover from another hobby like brewing. And with that let's go to the kitchen and start making our cheese. Alright so what we got going on here is a pot full of water and you can see it's at just hitting 90 degrees now which is our target temperature for the recipe.
0: Uh, hey David, so um, it looks like what, what do we have here? Um, is this like a water jacket around the pot of milk?
1: That's right. <laughs> and, yeah, uh,
0: I see. So you you kind of try to control the the temperature of the overall process by by the temperature of the water on the outside. You kind of slowly applying heat, and that I guess that works its way through to
1: the milk. Right, and if you want to heat it up, you um. See we've got the outside jacket. The outside temperature is at 88 right now, and we want the temperature to be the uh, the milk to be 90. So, it looks like they're about they're in equilibrium now. So I'm going to start the stove, and. Um,
0: and what's the what's special, David, about that temperature in particular, like 90, or what's? Um,
1: well, the um, each recipe is different. Um, they all seem to be around 80, from 80 to 100. Um, usually around 90 depending on what you want the the uh, temperature of the water right now or the milk right now um, is going to control how much uh, how much the bacteria multiply in um, in the starter that we're going to add right now so let's go ahead and do that so we can get done on time and I, what I've got here is um, two ice cubes or, uh, or I guess milk cubes uh, this is a starter uh, mesophilic starter that I um, got going in a jar mason jar a while ago and uh, then froze it when I was done. so I, I have a like tiny little packet of mesophilic starter um, in my freezer, which I've been using since I started cheese making. And instead of using the whole packet and throwing it in, i uh, I built up the culture and then froze um, froze results. And that's what this is. So we're gonna dump this in, hopefully not splashing too much. And one thing about this whole process is you try and keep everything as sterile as possible. Like before I, before I um, put milk in here, I uh, ran, I boiled uh, like an inch of water in the bottom with the top on. So everything, um, every, the pot was sterile before. it. Oh, I'm going to lose the, that'll be all right. So um,
0: see you want to make, just make sure that there's no other kinds of bacteria in there that might wreak havoc with the cheese making process, right?
1: Exactly. Um, Any anything I've been told by some by the person I took the class from that you don't need to be that careful, but I've had some sour cheeses, and so I'm taking as many precautions as I can.
0: Now, so David, the mesophilic starter—that's that's that's a type of bacteria that you've added.
1: Um, Yeah, there's there's two types of bacteria. There's mesophilic and thermophilic. Um, This is meaning and that has to do with what temperature. They uh, are most active at. Um, I, if you're making cheese commercially, you end up um, being very particular about the uh, bacteria you choose, but so you get consistency and um, uh, and uh, yeah, consistent results and uh, this exact flavor you're looking for. Uh, this this mesophilic culture, which I have recultured, came from um, New England Cheese Making Company, which is the Ricky Carrolls Company. Um, and I'm not sure, I've had some sour cheeses and I'm not sure if it's the culture's fault or if it's uh, my fault, probably a little both. Okay, so now what we got here, I think it's uh, pronounced Brevi Bacterium Linens. Um, and this is the kind of cheese, uh, the kind of bacteria that's used to, in making Limburger and uh, washed ryan cheeses Le- C- C- N- like that. Um, and this is a Munster that we're making so we're going to add a little bit of this, and apparently you only need like a eighth of a teaspoon or so. so. I'm going to add that now. Let that hydrate a little bit before I mix it in. So the coolest thing about this, I, don't, you, you, are you familiar with the Munster and uh, that kind of cheese?
0: Yeah, is that I don't know what I'm trying to remember what category is that like in the semi semi firm cheese or it's it's
1: heck it's a uh, I think it's a, a Semi-soft cheese. I'm not. I can't remember which it is either. But it's. um, It is a washed rind cheese, and it has this bacteria in it that I've just added, and it ends up making the cheese smell like um, feet.
0: Ah, so so that's so. There's a there is a correlation there, and the the type of bacteria is is something that we're we're kind of familiar with. It occurs elsewhere in nature, but in this case, it's been used. I guess. And she's making probably for some time, right, to achieve that particular type of flavor and aroma?
1: Yeah, I think it's, um, I think in the book, the um, American Farmstead Tea Cheese's book, uh, it talks about how this is uh, naturally occurring in the the cellars of monks, of uh, abbeys, where it was first made. Um, And so it just naturally infused the cheese. And uh, when you make these cheeses, you end up um, washing the rind with a, uh, either a brine solution or um, sometimes beer or champagne or wine, something like that. Um, and that's why they call it wash rind cheese. What,
0: what does washing the rind do? Does it um, infuse flavor, or is it for like
1: bacterial control? Or I think it enc- encourages the bacteria to, to multiply. Huh. This will make a um, a uh, a red covering on the uh, surface of the cheese, um, and I think that's. I think it's that watching it might uh, control other bacteria, and and it encourages this bacteria to grow. Um, and a lot of. Re- I've seen several recipes for this. This is one that just calls for putting it in the the milk at the start. Other ones have you. Um, uh, ha- have you add it later on? Like oh, uh, have you have you spray it on? Uh, after the cheese is made, after it's um, all done and in, in aging. Okay, so now we're going to add the rennet. This is cow rennet. This um, causes the proteins in the milk to coagulate and form more or less a gelatin-like stuff, uh, which is the beginnings of the cheese, of changing the liquid milk into solid cheese. Um and when you do this you always um each rennet's different and it's um you read it and figure out how much you need to use for your amount of milk. This is half a teaspoon for 2 gallons. So I'm going to put two quarters teaspoon to do this quarter cup of water. All right. So it doesn't seem that's not like a lot of mm-hmm. rennet but it does the job.
0: Uh so David I um I mean milk it would appear by all uh, reasonable accounts is, is primarily water, right. With other good stuff in it, like um, there's, I guess, milk sugars and there's fats and proteins, things like that. So um, it would seem like at some point we need to get um, the water out and uh, what, so I guess this coagulation process, how does, how does that let us
1: achieve that? Right. So yeah, there milk has um, a bunch of milk proteins in it. Uh, There's, Two main groups. There's the casein proteins, and there's the albumus proteins, which is also known as whey proteins. The casein proteins are what you're trying to get to knit together, and they knit together when you add the rennet, or um, if you're doing an acid coagulated cheese, you, uh, the acid forming in the milk will cause it to coagulate, um, and that traps the milk and other proteins in a kind of this protein matrix. Uh, which also and it also traps the water in it, and that's why it, it the whole thing turns into one big mass of jelly. After we get um, after it's it coagulated, we'll need to start uh, expelling the whey from that. So that the whey is uh, the whey proteins, which is uh, contains albumins proteins, the same protein that's in egg whites. Uh, those get expelled, and um, the the casein matrix of, of coagulated protein will shrink as you heat it, and that's how you get the whey out. And, and then depending on what kind of cheese you're making, you either can cook it longer to get more whey out or uh, scoop it out and, and uh, make a mold out of it and let the whey expel in the mold or in the press if you're pressing it.
0: So, I th- yeah, I think I've seen in the past maybe on TV or somewhere that after it's coagulated, sometimes they'll c- sort of cut cut the curd up, right? Is that part of the helping the process of releasing the water?
1: Exactly. Yeah, so they cut you, the reason you cut the curd is to increase the surface area of each curd, and so um, yeah, exactly. So that if you want, it, if you're making something like Parmesan, which has really low moisture, you're going to cut the curd to like the size of a grain of rice. If you're making something uh, like brie or camembert, you don't even cut the curd; you just scoop it out in, with a spoon and put it in the mold, and that's it retains a lot more water and so it's a much more moist cheese I and mean, then doesn't last as long I see. All right. so jeff you just uh i poured you a glass of raw milk um we were talking a little bit about raw milk um what do you think of it
0: well let me uh take a quick sip here i <laughs> i've never had raw milk as to the best of my knowledge i think you know um everything we buy in the store has been pasteurized and homogenized so yeah,
1: even Norris dairy which we can get here in the stores is is, is homo- it's not homogenized but it's pasteurized. It's pasteurized. Yeah. So,
0: well it, it is whole milk so it tastes creamy. Um it's a it's a little bit sweet but also um I I think you can almost taste like uh it's there's a bit of a, a grassiness to it or something like that um which I'd always heard that you go certain places where the milk is really fresh and and you can kind of taste um you can taste sort of what the almost like what the animal has been eating, the different kinds of grasses that grow in that area or whatever. So I, I kind of get a sense that that comes through a little bit better in a, in the raw milk is my impression, at least.
1: That's cool. Yeah, actually. No, so I, I found this uh, farm on, um, I'll put the link on the podcast. Uh, there's a website called like real will I'll look it up and put it on the podcast. Um, it had it, they have a list of uh, dairies that produce raw milk in various states where it's legal to produce. To purchase raw milk, um, in Oregon we um, we you can purchase raw milk, but you have to purchase it on the farm at which it's made produced, and they can't advertise and there's a limit to the number of cows, goats or sheep they have to I guess keep a major production from happening. Um, the place I get this from is called Old School Farm. There's a husband and wife with uh, I think four kids. Great, it's like a great family farm. They have two cows who I met and got to see when I first started buying milk from them they feed their cows alfalfa dried alfalfa which i'm sure is really expensive i guess they uh, at one point one of the cows was pretty sick so they called in the vet they the vet said the the cow has a calcium deficiency obviously he saw it right away or knew exactly what it was and so um they said you need to give him calcium supplements and they decided they said no we can't do that cuz we're an organic farm and we you can't you can't give them anything that's not grass or hay so um so they got they got this really expensive uh alfalfa to give them and it and part of the one of the things that you do when you do that get them really uh fresh stuff or good stuff is you get um a yellow color in the milk and in the cheese and that's that's where yellow cheddar uh, traditionally gets its yellow from if it's a spring um if it's in the spring the milk is from the spring and it has a lot more chlorophyll and uh beta carotene i think it is that um, gives it a yellow color but now most cheddars um that you see that are yellow have a a natural food coloring added to it, called a an, nanto, um, which is from a plant in South America. Interesting. It's, uh, one thing that's um, everyone says about making cheese at home is uh, you get good <laughs> cheese from good milk, and you so get the best milk you can you can get your hands on. And I've it takes so much time to make cheese <laughs> that um, even w- we're doing a small batch here. It's it's uh, it's worth. You're going to spend so much time making it and aging it. You do everything you can to make the best quality you can, so you're happy when you're done and don't yeah, feel disappointed.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're investing so much time. Why, why start with a crappy product in the beginning? To, you know, yeah. you got to start with the best. That, I think that makes sense.
1: Right. And if you're, I, I got the advice from our, my cheesemaker, uh, the person who taught my class. If you're starting out, go ahead and use starbuck milk um, because you'll make <laughs> some mistakes anyway. But uh, as soon as you feel like you got your cheese legs, get the get go, go go do some research and see if you can find some raw milk nearby. So here we're at what has it been? Thirty-five minutes? We said. I think it's about thirty-five. Thirty-five. Okay.
0: Now, David, I've I've heard um, I've heard talk of something that's called a break.
1: You want a clean break, and that's how you know whether or not it's time to cut the curds. I see. So, uh, that's the, a,
0: so you test the clean break? Is that How do you test that? With a spoon or...? Uh, you can
1: use a clean finger. I like to use this um, floating thermometer. This is how you do it. You you put something clean, like your finger or this in here, put it in, and lift it up. That's a clean break. That is as clean as you need to get.
0: Okay. So I see. So, so, when, so
1: when, you, when you separate well you, you put, the curd... You put it in and lift it up. And you can see that it's just it's breaking, it's breaking like uh, like it's really like it's solid. Yeah. So like it, it,
0: so, so there, it forms a line and it um, yeah. But you, it doesn't if, seem to be if, any water or any milky it, stuff right there. It forms a really right
1: clean right. line. A break. It, it's a clean break, and you can see that it's the way is filling in where it would where it broke. Gotcha.
0: You can see down down into the little. Yeah. It's like you it, 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 make a real there. good
1: triangle, and it's, gotcha. when you bring up, it's like look at that. That's that's really. That's well. That's as good as it needs to get. And if okay. you, get, and I think you don't want to go too far because then you have problem. Other, it causes other problems and I can't recall what those what those are. All right, now it's time to cut the curds, and so this recipe calls for quarter inch cubes. And I have um, they do sell cheese uh, curd cutting knives, but I believe in trying to save money wherever I can, not buying something that you only use for one thing. So I have a long um, Hinkle's uh slicing a uh, carving knife here which i'm using so what you do is you go to the bottom of the pan stick it in go all the way to the bottom and cut slices like this that are a half inch apart
0: so it looks like you're trying to go straight down to the bottom along one edge across and then yeah. back up so you get a full cut right right
1: so you're cutting it in a bunch of wide slices right now, and you, This is, and then, you'll, we'll, then we'll go turn it 90 degrees and cut it the other way. <laughs> you know, you want to keep the curds, you want to have each curd be as close to the other curds as possible, and I'm not terribly good at doing that. Okay, how do we do on time for that, on that uh, video? 22 and a half. Okay, good. All right, so I'm going to turn this. Okay, I'll
0: pause it for, yeah. so I see, so, so then you turn it 90 degrees, you're going to do it, Okay. I, yeah
1: there we go okay
0: <laughs> you turned it at an angle there and you're going to cut it off. so like
1: you could yeah I think I've, this is the way I've seen it done some people do it at like a 45 degree turn so you get end up getting diamonds okay so that's this is how I was I saw when I took my classes how they did it No. you think they, those are half inch Jeff
0: um yeah that looks actually like about um, it's kind of
1: I've never gotten a ruler out but that's kind of like my mind that's I think that's about half an inch.
0: Seems about right. Now, I, I do see the appearance of some water, David. Is that the whey? That's the
1: whey coming out, yeah.
0: Okay. And um, so the whey is the water and the the albumin-type protein, right? Right, the, the whey, yeah,
1: albumin-type, albumus, I believe is the word. one thing about cheesemaking is you get to use all these big words that are hard to pronounce. <laughs> I think the proper pronunciation is albumus, albumus.
0: Okay, the albumus proteins. And, uh, um... So what what happens to those? Or is that something we're just going to sort of pour down the sink, or is there any way to recover
1: the yeah. watery portion? No, that's a good question. There's, um, you can um, make what is called re- whey ricotta, which is just ricotta made from the leftover whey. Um, what you do, we, in order to make ricotta, you just um, heat up the whey to uh, almost boiling, just 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 under boiling, and uh, 190 degrees is what you. Okay, now I've done, Now we've done this. I'm gonna cut at a 45 degree angle going down, and this is gonna cut each, get it into be to be more or less cubes, sort of, hopefully. Yeah, you, you heat heat up the whey to almost boiling, and it um, it causes the albumus program, proteins to um, coagulate, kind of like an egg white does when you cook it. And then you filter that through cheesecloth, and you have ricotta. Okay, now I'm gonna go. Which way I'm gonna go? This way.
0: Is that some? Do you always make a ricotta, or do you always try to use the way afterwards, <laughs> or sometimes it just gets too late, or?
1: Uh... Usually, it gets too late. <laughs> if I'm feeling really, um, yeah, it'd be, it's nice. To, it'd be nice to do it, but it seems it's often. Um, yeah, it, it takes so long to make it that you. Unless I did start in the morning and it's I still have time. Uh, it's nicer when you have, make a four-gallon batch because then you have a lot more weight left over and you get a sniffing amount. Because out, out of a two-gallon batch, you'll probably get like a quarter cup worth of ricotta.
0: Oh, got you. So yeah. it's 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 a lot of extra work for you know, something, a product you may not even want at the time. So probably up to the cheesemaker.
1: Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd need to use it right away too because it tends to go sour in a week or so. So. It's it's definitely, if, if you use the best use, your, you know, the other thing you do with the whey is just pour it in your garden. It's good. It's a good fertilizer. All right. So now we're, we've cut the curds. Ooh, look at that. It's all, <laughs> as I stick in with like this um, stir, it's very thick. It's hard to move it around, but I just want to make sure everything's cut.
0: Now, uh, David. So what we've done at this point, yeah, we've got the curds cut. Mm-hmm. The way the whey is clearly coming out at this point, but I guess we need to uh, let it continue to sit on this low heat for a while, so that um, I guess do the does the curd continue to tighten up? I guess and push water out, or
1: exactly, it's um, so now we've cut it. the 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 whey, the water, and the whey proteins are escaping from the curd and um so these curds you see now that are about hopefully if we did it right um half inch in half inch curds they'll shrink as um as we let them uh, expel the whey. i'm just kind of turning it over here to make sure there aren't any big curds that need to be cut up or finer. finer uh, as i understand it you need to the having the curds be the same size is pretty important otherwise you get some curds that are full of water because they were too big, and some curds that have expelled all their their whey and aren't, um, and so you get you know moist spots and dry spots in your in your cheese. So as as we um sl- the recipe has us uh, stay here wait wait for it to uh, expel whey for thirty minutes. So I'm going to say about like seven fifteen or so. Well, being a little earlier than that. Um, we'll uh we'll transfer the we'll uh stop it from stop the cooking process well uh the next step is to put it into a colander lined with cheesecloth but right now the curds are going to they'll shrink a little bit and um, expel whey so so it's all it's all about (laughs) separating the curds from the whey and this is so and you want to do that differently for each cheese but for this one it just says keep it at 90. for other cheeses like cheddar you would raise the temperature in order to uh, get the the, to uh get the courage to coagulate to cho- um coagulate more um I condense what do you say you say uh what is it coagulate uh, contract contract, or? contract yeah squeeze <laughs> contract and squeeze out more more, more ways so yeah, so cheddar. for like a cheddar or something you would have it at a higher temperature for like a parmesan you bring it up to like even i think it's 120 or 140 to, re- to really squeeze out all the water and get just the the, pro- the fats and the and the proteins left and over.
0: Each type of cheese has a different curd and a different time and a different temperature to, to try to get that right, right amount of water left over at the end, I guess. Right, the right moisture level. Exactly,
1: and it's and every, so, you, almost all cheeses have the exact exact same ingredients of um, milk, rennet, uh, starter bacteria, and um, and salt, and the how you treat it, um, how you, how you cook it, how you treat it you come up with completely different cheeses which is kind of amazing and this munster cheese that we're making today it's um it's a semi-soft cheese so we're not trying to get rid of all the the whey and we'll, that it, because of that it won't last as long um but it'll be softer and hopefully very tasty hopefully that Ruffi bacterium lens will make it very tasty and you can see oh see there's a lot more whey on the top here than there was beginning so I, I think we just stir it every so often. A
0: lot of water coming out. Yeah. Well, that's.
1: Whoa! There's a big curd. I need to get rid of. And you see a big curd, you just kind of find it and chop it up with the with the ladle. Yeah. Just turn it over. Any big curds, just chop them up to the size they're supposed to be. Oh, there we go.
0: So, uh, So David, I, I, I know uh, it looks like we're, we're getting close to the end of our rest here for these curds,
1: and there's a lot of whey now. Yeah. You can't even see the curds anymore underneath the Dude. top layer of whey.
0: Yeah, they seem to be uh, definitely tightening up.
1: You want, um, ideally, I think the whey is supposed to be uh, clear, more clear than it is right now, which means we may have lost some milk fat to the whey. It's probably not that big a deal. Um, I'm not going to worry about it at all. Yeah. So next, we're going to after this is done, we're going to um, transfer this to a colander, a, a cheesecloth-lined colander, and we're sterilizing that now. Um, and then we get it, it'll sit in there for thirty minutes, and uh, after it's done that, then we put transfer it into uh, cheese molds.
0: So it's got a, So it's got. Oh, okay. So thirty minutes in the cheesecloth-lined colander. And then we transfer to the molds and we'll, I guess we'll weigh be continuing to drain out even once it's in the molds. I mean, is that, um, is that still part of the draining process?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The molds, the molds, um, we're going to be using, I have, um, two cut out of PVC pipe and one that's a food grade plastic. Um, they, they'll be sitting on top of uh, sushi mats, um, which allow the, the way to drain out the bottom. And every so often, after I think we uh, I'll have to review the recipe, I think you, every so often you uh, turn them over to let the weight drain out both sides.
0: What um, And is this a type of, um, is there any pressure that's put on these particular molds? Um, and it, I understand that's done sometimes, right, to sort of help force more moisture out.
1: Right, and to knit the curd together. Yeah, for a cheddar or a, one of the harder cheese, a hard cheese, like Gouda, Gouda. Um, you would That's exactly you, you press it under a heavy weight, and I have a press set up here in the kitchen to do that but um, and I kind of wanted to make a cheese that used a press just to show that off to you but um, uh, we're, we're doing this one instead
0: <laughs> Well I'm sure it's going to be delicious either way but uh.
1: well, one nice thing about this one it'll be done within a, a couple months at the most, so we'll, we'll try it within a reasonable amount of time
0: what's um, what's the what's the fastest Uh, Cheese you've ever done or what are some of the faster cheeses a person could do and then I guess what are some examples of also like a really long-aged cheese?
1: Um, The fastest one I've done is uh, I did a um, mozzarella with the fast recipe uh, where instead of using bacteria to create the the acidic environment um, before you add the rennet, you add uh, citric acid. Uh, The problem with that is that it makes cheese quickly but it doesn't taste very good. The bacteria uh, create a lot more flavor uh, in addition to extruding lactic acid, which makes the, the milk <laughs> acidic, um, they create a lot of other um, compounds that are tasty. Um, uh, so um, that's, a, that's a commonly, a frequently asked question about cheese baking. How long does it take? Um, you can make a mozzarella in 30 minutes. That doesn't taste very good. You can make a mozzarella that tastes pretty good, I think, in a day. Um, but I haven't done that yet. And you can make... Um, like a Chev or something like that, pretty quickly too, like within you know a day, um, for it to taste good. And then the longest cheese is like Parmesan could take a year to age. Uh, I've made a Gouda which I've aged three months and didn't turn out that good, but it it definitely it, it was it turned out to be cheese, but not a cheese that I really like. <laughs>
0: and your Stilton, which we, we tried your Stilton earlier, and that that was aged what four months?
1: It was yeah, four months, and that's yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm a lot more pleased with that than I was my So the curds sat for 30 minutes, and um, we just drained them, uh, which uh, involved lining a in colander with cheesecloth, and I'm just checking that it's it's draining. The bottom of the colander is above the bottom uh, of the. We have the colander inside of the larger pot. So
0: you've got a yeah. You, you've got a uh, nice setup where you have a colander and also another pot that you did the uh, initial part, the curd making part mm-hmm. that sit in a bigger pot. And I think that that really makes it easy.
1: Yeah, it's it, you know a lot of this is all about having your equipment or figuring out what <laughs> kind of figuring out what your equipment is going to do. And a- after you do it a few times, you know what equipment you want to use for everything. I just I have a lot of this stuff left over from my brewing days. I'm sure you probably have a lot of stuff like this, too.
0: Yeah, I, I'm, I used to brew, and every once in a while I still do a little brewing. But, yeah, any, any home brewer certainly would have a lot of the equipment, it seems like, that you would yeah. need.
1: Now, I'm I've, um, I've kind of pushing my equipment limits right now because I'm uh, – right. This is a good, easy batch to do. It's two, two gallons. Yeah, go ahead and turn that down. We'll put our, put our molds. We've got to sterilize our molds for our next process. Just sort of drop them yeah. in? Yeah.
0: The curd's all done. We put it into the colander with the cheesecloth. It's draining now. And it, in this for this particular recipe, the curds need about 10 minutes to drain, right?
1: That's right. So we've got 10 minutes draining here. We're sterilizing the um, rest of our equipment. Uh, we've got some sushi mats we're going to use for a draining boards. They go underneath the molds. And turn that over.
0: So so the, we'll ladle the curds into the... Um, into the molds and the molds sit on top of the of the sushi mats. So I guess it allows water to drain through at a steady rate, but the curds want to stay behind, um, I imagine. Exactly. <laughs> and do the curds do the curds start to kind of stick together and sort of coagulate yeah, together they a mat. little bit more? They match? Yeah, they
1: okay. mats together. So um since this is these curds aren't pressed, um I mean they're not cooked very much. There's still a lot of water in them they'll they'll map pretty easily uh, at least i think so all right so that's how uh you make munster at least according to the recipe i have what'd you think
0: it was very interesting i, I learned a lot i think about the cheese making process um i i think i initially i, w- I was a little intimidated um just re- you know reading stuff on the web and not knowing anything about it but um
1: I think something about cheese making is you really need to have either uh, in class experience or hands on experience. You need to see it being done. Because um, I bought the uh, Ricky Carroll's book before I uh, before I took the class before my wife took me to my my first class at uh, Kukulon Farms, and um, I had read it and it just it looked way too complicated, it's overwhelming. But then actually seeing it being done, it all all the all the things made sense. Um, so I think, I think that's, I think either, uh, I don't even know if you can get it from a YouTube video, although I'm going to be posting a few on, from, from our tonight's experiment. It reminds me
0: very much of like the first, um, you know, half a dozen times that I was making beer, um, and you read the brewing books and they talk about all the process and sanitize at this point and be very careful with this. And, and then once you've done it after a while, you see, okay, I, now I really see, how to make it easy for myself. And I understand the process. And I think for the cheese making, um, it, it, I think, uh, it would come very quickly if you had that kind of hands-on experience with someone who has done it before.
1: Right, right, right. So, yeah. So for our next steps, uh, for the Munster, it's sitting right now, draining on sushi on, uh, in molds and on sushi mats, uh, the, they need to stay there for 24 hours, and then we check to see how firm they are. They look, they look a little firmer than I expected from the recipe. That seemed um, so. Hopefully, everything's going to go turn out all right. Uh, then you um, sprinkle salt on them. Every cheese um, you need to have salt in every cheese. It acts as a preservative. It also helps um, flavor it. Uh, I think break down the um, uh, cause the aging to to, to take place correctly. And yeah, it, a cheese without salt doesn't taste very good. And uh, then, in approximately, well, in ten days, there's supposed to be a, a red, slimy mold that grows on the outside, which is the bee linens doing their job, making it all stinky. And um, if we see that, we'll be good. Um, and then, in a month or two months, we'll uh, we'll try it and we'll we'll record that for the one of the next podcasts, upcoming podcasts.
0: Is there a particular type of salt that you use? Is it a coarse salt, like a kosher salt? or do Yeah. You, salt?
1: Um, you need to use a salt that doesn't have iodine. And so um, for some cheeses, you need to um, soak it in a brine, a water salt solution. And for that, the cheapest thing to do is get a pickling salt. Um, uh, pickling salt has no iodine in it. You can use that. And uh, you, you can measure it by weight so that because... Um, uh, as opposed to like k- kosher salt, for instance, pickling salt is a lot more dense and so you use about eighty percent of the weight uh, you would use in kosher salt eighty percent of the volume um, of cheese salt equals the hundred percent of um, kosher salt. Yeah. There is something called cheese salt which um, I understand is a little bit uh finer than kosher salt. Um, and i think you can i've been read that you can simulate cheese salt um, uh by taking kosher salt and, and putting it in a plastic bag and rolling it with a rolling pin to get it to a small a slightly smaller grain you it's cheese salt isn't doesn't seem to be available easily through uh uh unless you uh get large quantities you're 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 a commercial cheesemaker so
0: I see. So, and then, um, and then, so once the, once the has had a chance to sit for 24 hours and drain and the salting process, is that, that's just a matter of, um, sprinkling salt evenly all over the outside yeah. of,
1: of the rounds that we made. Exactly. Um, uh, at least the, the recipe I'm using, it calls just sprinkling a quarter teaspoon on the outside of, uh, the, and, um, uh, in my American farmstead, uh, Cheese book, uh, which is it, they explain that um, a coarser grain salt is better than a fine grain salt like pickling salt. You're actually sprinkling it on a, a, a bigger flake. Uh, I think um, it, it ends up working better. I think that camembert I, I had you try, it has um, it ends up having a, it ended up being a little bit too salty. I think that's because I use pickling salt. It, it called for actually rolling the the, the cheese in salt. Um, which I think added too much salt to the cheese.
0: So after after the cheese is salted, then it, uh, do you put it into, um, how do you store it at that point? I know you have some refrigerators to right. you age
1: your cheese in. Each cheese is different. Um, this recipe calls for aging it at 55 degrees Fahrenheit at 85% humidity. And you can get a um, hygrometer, hygrometer, I think it is, hygrometer, that measures humidity, which I don't have. So I kind of just guess what the humidity is. I think what I'm going to do is um, I have some uh, um, food-grade plastic matting. I'm going to put it in the bottom of a Tupperware container so it does not sitting in its own juices at the bottom. No. So I think what I'm going to do is uh, get this food-grade plastic matting that I have and put that in the bottom of a Tupperware container and put that in one of my cheese refrigerators that I have set at 55 degrees um, using an external thermostat or I have a wine refrigerator that can, can set to a degree, uh, that warm up a temperature. Most refrigerators don't go that low. You mentioned this is a washed
0: rind cheese. So does that mean you have to pull the cheese out periodically? And, uh,
1: yes, every, uh, according to this recipe, every two days you, um, you want take it out and wash it with a brine solution. And I believe that's to, um, promote the growth of the bee linens and to, um, Discourage other growth, other bacterial growth.
0: And then, uh, is there any way to know from looking at a cheese from the outside that um,
1: if it's done or if not? It's
0: done or not. Uh, <laughs> I
1: wish there were. You, there are these things called cheese triers. That if you're if you're dealing with a really big hunk of cheese, a big you know wheel of cheese, you you want to. It's a basically like, uh, kind of like an auger that you push a middle. It's like a well, for for home cheese making, you can use like a potato peeler, like the the ones mm. that has this a long spoot, like I long see. flat, um, curved blade that you could stick in and turn around. And the uh, the cheese tryers are the same thing, except they're bigger and uh, get deeper, in the, you know, get deeper into a big wheel of cheese. Uh, but if you for home cheese and you use a cheese a uh, potato peeler, um, stick it in, turn it around, get a, get a like a core sample, and then when you're done trying it, you push it back in. And uh, and uh, and then smooth it over, and supposedly that's everything's good again. So Very that, yeah, yeah. Um, you can if you cut into a wheel of cheese, uh, it apparently stops aging. So you have to eat it at that point. Um, I, I I'm not quite sure why. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, I'll, maybe I'll learn in the in the class I'm taking at OSU in a few weeks. So,
0: as a beginning cheesemaker, what um, are there some sort of common mistakes that um, beginning cheesemakers will make their first couple of batches.
1: um. I think, unfortunately I am still a beginning cheesemaker. So I'm probably still making those mistakes and figuring out what those are. Um, What I've learned so far is uh, it's really important to take notes so that when you, when something goes wrong, you you can go back and see if you can figure out why. I think um, I understand sanitation is very important. Although um, my teacher said that it's not super important, you'd still make cheese. Um, she kind of had the attitude: this is Mary Rosenblum, who I hope to get on the show at some point. Uh, that uh, you know, you might not end up making the cheese that you set out to make, but it'll still be good cheese. It'll still be cheese, and if it's not, doesn't taste bad, um, you should enjoy it and call it, call it whatever it tastes like. Like that uh, Gouda I made that doesn't taste like Gouda. Well, maybe it's maybe it's a cheddar of some sort. Uh, if it doesn't taste good, then then talk it up to experience and don't do do not change something, do something better next time. So I wish I had a better answer, but I'm still learning myself. <laughs> I'd have one thing that does kind of pee me off, I guess, is uh I can't stand all the cheese making books out there that say 50 easy cheeses, easy cheese making recipes or 50 easy recipes to make cheese. Because making cheese is not easy it takes a lot of time it's easy to make to to mess things up and have a sour cheese and uh it's not there's nothing about cheese making that's very similar to many other kinds of cooking it's very, it's very specialized like something stuff you'd never really think of you know, when if you're if you're into cooking which is kind of exciting it's a it's something very interesting to learn and uh one of the best benefits i think about making cheese making is really understanding how cheese is made and understanding what all the cheeses in the at the that the, the cheesemonger has what what they all are and how they differ and how they're the same and you can talk to them and not sound like an idiot or not feel like an idiot at least um i had some questions
0: about the uh, the milk um, we had talked earlier about um, sources for getting milk and using raw milk if possible um uh, and i know that some people are are uh, you know we've been conditioned maybe to think that we should be a little nervous about Raw milk, but um, really, I think does raw milk. Uh, it seems to have some advantages, right?
1: I think that um, the to make cheese, the better cheese, the best cheese comes from the best milk. I, in, in my opinion, if you're going to make cheese, you should probably get the best product you can start with. Uh, if you're concerned about pathogens, and you're you can pasteurize it yourself at home. You can heat it to 140 degrees for 30 minutes. And it'll be pasteurized, and probably little, it'll be more gently pasteurized than when it would be done for milk for um, mass consumption. But if if you're a healthy person and uh, you enjoy full-flavored cheese and uh, enjoy getting everything from the cow or the goat or the sheep, I think you'll you you should try making milk with with raw milk because uh, you can't buy it unless you can't buy raw milk cheese unless it's been aged more than 60 days in America, or in America you can't buy cheese that's made from raw milk unless it's been aged for 60 days which is you know you still get there's plenty of cheeses that are aged that long that taste great made from raw milk but you can't get a a camembert for instance that's um that's made from raw milk and pasteurized milk gotcha well thanks jeff for coming and being part of this first podcast hopefully there'll be many more and we'll have you over again
0: I'd love to join you again it was a lot of fun very informative Um, I learned a lot and I think uh, if I wanted to try cheese making on my own I think I I, I'd uh, have a much better idea of where to start and the steps and what to expect and
1: yeah maybe next time we'll do it over at your house that'd be great with your your equipment someone someone who's not set up to do it someone starting I'll just bring over the ingredients and we'll try doing it in your pots come on over I'm game All right. sounds good All right. thanks a lot thanks Well, that wraps up our first episode of the Home Cheesemaking Podcast. Thanks again to Jeff Cowan for joining us for our cheesemaking experience today. You can find out all about us at joyofcheesemaking.com and send us email questions and we'll try to answer them on a future show. Email us at podcast at com. We'll see you next time. Now go make some cheese.